Welcome to our Thought Leadership Series. My name is Brandon Cooper. I'm the Chief Risk Officer here at Venminder. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by a friend of mine, James Russell. James Russell has worked on all sides of the fence with respect to the financial services industry, including working for a regulator, working for various financial institutions, and working for various third-party service providers. James started his career in banking after college, beginning with a 10-year career in the, with the FDIC, followed by 20 years in a variety of private industry positions. In addition to consulting, James has served as the Chief Compliance and BSA Officer of a $5 billion institution. Additionally, James has served as the CCO and BSA Officer of Achieved Card, a large third-party prepaid card program manager. James is now working in the prepaid and payment industry. Welcome, James. Any opening comments you'd like to say? Uh, no, Brandon, but I really appreciate your inviting me. Sounds great. Well, let's get off to the races and talk a little bit about third-party risk management. First, maybe perhaps you could tell me how third-party vendor management has changed over the past decade from your perspective. Well, Brandon, from my perspective, I think that the uh, regulatory community now has forced bankers to move third-party risk management from an afterthought to an essential component of banking. And I was thinking when I was preparing this, uh, uh, preparing for this podcast, what what precipitated this change? And I think it was perhaps Y2K that really rattled the regulatory community. While the regulators totally inflated the Y2K risk, they probably realized during the process that third-party providers of software and processing services, et cetera, can significantly impact a financial uh, service provider, um, such as banks, credit unions, brokerage firms, et cetera. Well, since Y2K, there have been a variety of moves to turn third-party risk management to a process rather than the aforementioned afterthought. One document that I want to refer the listeners to is the regulatory guidance by the OCC. This is the OCC's 2013 guidance on third-party relationships. This document was really well written, and regardless of whom your regulator is, be it FDIC, NCUA, OCC, CFPB, whatever, this document should be used as a self-audit checklist for every institution. Even though the document is almost five years old, I truly believe it is still relevant and still the gold standard. Since uh, the OCC document, it is apparent that all regulators now place third-party risk management at the top of the list of things to review at each bank examination. And I will say, Brandon, that overall, I believe the regulatory oversight has been appropriate in this area. You know, I, I agree with you, James. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the OCC document. The one that he's referring to is Bulletin 29 of 2013. The OCC has come out with a couple of other bulletins in the past year, uh, Bulletin 7 of 2017 and Bulletin uh, 21 of 2017, that basically just repeated a lot of the key guidance that's in uh, the original one, 29 of 2013. It really is the gold standard. I mean, it is the playbook for how third-party risk management ought to be done. 
And, and James, from your perspective, you know, what, what third-party risk management issues are you seeing during examinations? Um, I'm basically seeing a lot of attention uh, given to uh, third-party uh, risk management. I see it in the risk area, the IT area, compliance, BSA, trust, BSA and trust, excuse me, um, there's just a lot of questions. Um, it's important within all departments and all revenue streams of the financial institution. And then second, I would say the regulatory community is expecting a formal process rather than kind of the, the old way we did it where we had an unorganized assortment of documents, and we tried to bluff the regulators into thinking we were properly managing third-party risk. Um, yep. that, that's no longer allowed. This is a formal process. It is very clear that you need a formal risk assessment that includes all third-party partners. And I would say that's from the cleaning crew to your appraisers, to your core processor. They all need to be included. And by the way, Brandon, a good place to start there and a, and a good cross-check is to go to your accounts payable um, for the end of the year and, and go through that list. And that way you'll pretty much make sure you've identified most of them. Um, the risk assessment, um, needs to include an assessment of whether the third party receives uh, confidential uh, PII, of course, personally identifiable information, whether the third party is critical to operations, and whether business continuity plan planning should be in place for that third party. Also, within the risk assessment process, it is imperative that risk mitigation strategies be developed. Uh, I would say, Brandon, this is one area where I see deficiencies within financial institutions that they don't talk about the risk mitigation strategies. And of course, some some risks can't be mitigated uh, uh, except for the purchase of insurance or discontinuing the product line altogether. But a lot of risk can be mitigated. What good is a risk assessment if you don't address how to mitigate the risk? Um, right. I do see that as a big uh, as, as a big area where institutions could do better. Um, one more thing that the that the institution that the uh, that the formal process should include is a formal due diligence process. Um, it must be formalized, and again. Brandon, I refer uh, the listener to the 2013 and, as you mentioned, the subsequent OCC guidance. Um, you can no longer just paper your files with whatever the vendor sends you. If the vendor doesn't have, for example, an SSAE 16 report on service providers, you must ask yourself if they need it. Obviously, the cleaning crew does not need an SSAE 16 report but you have a lot of vendors that should have one. Mm -hmm. If the vendor does have the report, you must review it. At, at a minimum, you need to decide if there are any controls you should implement. 
that is one of the primary purposes of the report, to help the financial institutions adjust their controls so that the financial institution combined with the vendor have an appropriate level of control in place. And um, in addition to SSA 16 reports, um, you know, the same thing goes for the vendor's business continuity plans, uh, their cybersecurity controls, their PCI reports, et cetera. All these reports, you, you need to think about, does this vendor need each of the reports uh, that I mentioned? And there are others. Again, refer to the OCC guidance. Um, and this is really important, Brandon, and, and I, I see sometimes when I go into financial institutions, a simple little initial, like initial from the head of IT that, that we've reviewed the, uh, the PCI report or the cybersecurity controls or the SSAE 16 report um, and maybe initials on the cover. This is not a checkmark thing. Uh, this you have to actually review the report, and some of these reports can be 50 pages long. You need to figure out how to review those reports and figure out if there are any deficiencies you need to address. And then, uh, if there are any deficiencies, and even if there aren't, you need to figure out how your institution can mitigate the issues mentioned in those reports. Again, it's not just a initial the the cover of the of the report. Um, one one kind of final thing as part of the the formal process is let's not forget the board of directors. In fact, uh, the uh, OCC guidance uh, that I mentioned from 2013 mentions the board 22 times. And the guidance has a whole section on the board's responsibilities. I highly encourage all of your financial institutions to um, to take that to take that uh, section of the guidance and and perhaps put it in front of your board of directors. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned it not being sort of that checklist type mentality exercise. It really does need to be an informed review and really. Uh, identify specifically what you need to do uh, to address any risks that are that are uh, in the reports that you take a look at, not simply gather them for documentation purposes and move on. And I do see a lot of institutions who kind of make that mistake. They get so caught up in the process that they forget they actually need to read through the documents and, and do something with them. You know, it's interesting. You've got a unique perspective having worked uh, for a third-party vendor at Achieve Card, and it's where you and I first got to work with each other. Did you have a different perspective there uh, when you when you were working with a third party rather than being at the bank or at a regulator? Well, I I think I did have somewhat of a different perspective. Um, at, at times, I felt like I was on defense um, <laughs> uh, rather than offense. Um, uh, I would say, Brandon, that Achieve Card is a perfect example of when a third-party relationship or how a third-party relationship can go bad. Um, Achieve Card had an actual on-site FDIC exam based on Achieve Card's relationship with First California Bank. 
the on-site exam was pretty much unheard of in the industry, um, yet it resulted in a consent order being issue, issued to Achieve Card. The exam and order uh, resulted in my being hired by Achieve Card uh, uh, for the for the simple purpose of improving Achieve Cards and the bank's uh, consumer compliance, and pretty much helping the bank and Achieve Card get out of a, a bad situation. Before the exam, uh, of course, this was anecdotally provided to me, but uh, but it's pretty easy to read between the lines of the consent order um, to figure this out. And uh, and as I was talking with the uh, Achieve Card and bank employees, um, before the exam, I would say it was fair to say that both the bank and Achieve Card gave little more than lip service to Achieve Card's uh, consumer compliance. The bank, uh, unfortunately, appeared satisfied to pretend that Achieve Card was solely responsible uh, for their own operations and that Achieve Card was solely responsible for the compliance related to the bank issued prepaid debit cards. And unfortunately, Achieve Card didn't know enough about consumer compliance to meet industry standards. Achieve Card, it's fair to say, was a marketing company um, and basically would do would focus on marketing with very little effort being given to uh, consumer compliance. Combined, the total cost, including penalties, consumer reimbursements, and remediation plans, to the bank and achieve card was several million dollars. Oh. And Brandon, I will say that doesn't even count the lost opportunities and disruption to operations during the process when we were uh, struggling to get out from underneath that consent order. Um, I would say most glaring in the achieve card consent order debacle was really the ignorance within achieve card regarding consumer compliance. Had the financial institution, as an industry expert, um, helped educate Achieve Card or force Achieve Card to gain the appropriate expertise, there would have been a lot less grief all the way around, and the uh, and per perhaps no consent, or hopefully no consent order would have ever been issued, and uh, and Achieve Card uh, and the bank could have. Uh, had a great relationship uh, without the added stress of the regulatory community. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it brings up that uh, the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and that's very true in, in this case. And it's funny, having also worked for a couple of institutions that were operating under consent orders, you, you made a, an excellent point, and that is it isn't just the, the money that, that, that is at stake there. It's your reputation. It's the business disruption. It's all those things that really just eat away at your time and your energy because you're working to get out, out from under the consent order and losing time and losing market share to your competitors. So, again, in, investing ahead of time really does make a huge difference in, in that case. I would agree with you completely on that. It's, In fact, I, I would say that that is – your the cost to your reputation, 
and the cost of your uh, ability to be an industry leader or to even operate in the industry ends up being way more costly than than the uh, penalties and and reimbursements. So uh, th thanks for your added comments on that. Absolutely. Well, James, this has been terrific. Any any final thoughts you want to share with the audience before we wrap up? Um, sure. Uh, I would say, obviously, take third-party risk management very seriously. There should be a point person at, in every financial institution, and for that matter, at every third-party vendor um, that is in charge of the third-party um, risk management program. Uh, there should absolutely be a point person. Um, and I'm uh, this is a little rough, but I, I'm guessing if, if you're about a $500 million bank, uh, you probably need a, a dedicated person to third-party risk management and certainly, if you are over a billion dollars, you must have a dedicated person uh, to this important function. The, the second thing is I would encourage all the listeners to reread the OCC guidance on third-party relationships. I, uh, I believe that you can turn these documents into like a self-audit checklist. I'm a big proponent of like self-audit checklists. And then uh, with this checklist, you can gauge your level of compliance and refine your process. Um, every time I read the, especially the OCC guidance, every time I reread that guidance, I end up learning something new, and it kind of jogs my memory of things I need to do to to make sure that uh, that our program meets the uh, regulatory standards. Another thing that that I highly encourage all institutions to do is make sure you have some audit coverage of your third-party risk management program. Um, if even if the auditor is doing it as, as part of uh, an IT review or as part of your risk review, whatever, make sure you have some coverage. It, it, it both shows the regulators that you're taking it seriously, it shows your board you're taking it seriously, and you might actually learn something new that will help you improve your program. And then kind of my final comment would be um, get the board involved. If you leave the board in the dark, they will end up being embarrassed when the examiners come to town and maybe the examiners are chatting with the board members either at your wrap-up meeting or before or at your board meeting. Um, you need to make sure the board is involved and, uh, and nobody wants an embarrassed board and so you you got to tee this issue up with them so they know what's going on. James, I think you said it just about perfectly, and, and really ending on that note as well. I think that's uh, important. You know, make sure the board is involved. You, you certainly don't want to damage the reputation or have your board embarrassed or surprised by anything. 
So thank you again to James for joining us today, and thank you to everyone for listening in on this session. We will be doing future interviews in this series and look forward to your participation in those as well. Thanks, everyone.